are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything possible? Live from the first week of an improvised online... Chris Garretts. And Chris Moore. And Sam Mulberry. So, students and other listeners, welcome to... Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be kind of a typical 252 episode. There are going to be three segments. We'll have uh, kind of current events conversation to start, a little bit different mm-hmm. conversation in the middle, and then we'll close with three things we think you should watch or read or otherwise explore in our sports-deprived world. But uh, we should note before we <laughs> get into the confines this, of your own homes, right? That's right. Before we get into this, we should just remind uh, everyone, certainly students know this, but others who might be listening in, that this, this podcast has now fully entered our course at Bethel University on the history and politics of sports because we are online for the rest of the semester. And so we thought in lieu of having any kind of face-to-face discussion, at least what we could do is maybe model some discussion of course-related topics through our podcast. So what's happened during the week is that students watched a set of four kind of mini lectures about African-American history as seen through the lens of sports on Monday. Had some reading in our textbook on Monday and Tuesday wrote individual responses that then their, we call them uh, professional learning communities, their, their teams essentially worked on together. So we're using the team responses to write our script for today. So in segment two, we're going to try to decide which four figures have the strongest case to be on a Mount Rushmore of African-American sports history. So we've tabulated the student results. We now are actually going to make the final decision. So we'll, we'll do some history in segment two. We're going to start with some current events, though. We asked them. Uh, essentially take a concept from your reading or from the lectures from this history of African-American sports and suggest some kind of connection to current events. So we're going to talk about race and sports through the lens partly of history, but really of what's happening most recently. So Chris, let me start with, I think, what was by far the most popular topic. Uh, So can we just head this under Colin Kaepernick? Sure. Right. So a lot of questions (laughs) about uh, take a knee. We had talked about that at the beginning of our fourth micro lecture as we got into uh, athlete activism. So there are at least two different ways of getting at this that I thought we'd we'd do. And let me start with one that I think is really more in your court than mine. So uh, our team called the Justins, there's only one Justin, but he's the namesake of the team, wondered if it tends, uh, if athlete activism tends, quote, to create more positive or negative outcomes. Does it lead to more discussion of social issues, which can lead to more awareness and possibly change? Or does it lead to arguments and distractions for viewers, athletes, and others involved? Uh, I guess, in short, like how effective or what are the consequences of athlete activism? Yeah. Um, and I think the answer to the Justin's question, hi, Justin's, is that kind of like the Cleveland Browns? There was like one Brown, but the, everyone's known as the Browns now, basically. Um, uh but the for the Justins, I think sorry, I was drinking. I would have been laughing up I was going for a spit take the there. Water no, it's fine. No. Okay. Okay. So here's the deal. I, I think that it's uh, it, the answer is yes. So the answer is when an athlete gets involved uh, in some kind of a social issue, it really is a um, it plays a really effective role at branding the issue and tying it to them. We don't. Um, we don't often think about the uh, the Black Power movement amongst athletes without thinking of Tommy Smith, right? And Colin Kaepernick will be fa- will be known as the quarterback who took a knee far more than any other athletic accomplishments that he produced in the NFL. That is his defining legacy, um, even if he ever even if he ever plays again. 
And that's what it does. Uh, having an athlete uh, take a, a stand like this draws attention. It creates discussion, um, but it does not necessarily induce change. And I was talking a little bit offline about this, but there's very scant evidence that uh, celebrities, including athletes, getting behind uh, specific uh, social movements directly motivates change. But what it does is it creates conversation, discussion, and publicity. Mm-hmm. And what that tends to be is polar. Rising. Mm-hmm. And so in, in uh, especially in our modern climate, we're well familiar with what polarization is, but basically and on a lot of issues in electoral politics, Democrats and Republicans have moved further apart from each other on lots of kinds of things. And here's a sobering, really contemporary one. Up until just the last couple of last week or so, there was a huge uh, difference in terms of how seriously Democrats versus how seriously Republicans understood the coronavirus to be. There was almost a 20 point gap between Republican Democrat understandings of the seriousness of the issue. That's weird. Um, this does not feel like a partisan issue other than we have a Republican president in the White House. And for a while, he was decidedly underplaying how important coronavirus is. And so because of that, Republicans were basically agreeing with the president and saying, oh, this isn't as big of a deal. And Democrats were saying it was. Likewise, once uh, Colin Kaepernick Kaepernick takes a knee, what that does is it tends to polarize. So people who were already um, opposed to protests of the national anthem for any reason uh, became even more opposed to them. And people who were in favor of, of sort of protests and particularly the issue of police violence against persons of color um, became more motivated. It didn't actually, it created conversation, but it created divisive conversation. And I'm not sure that there's any way around that either, to be frank. Not in the short term. I mean, my only other thought was, I wonder how we would probably answer this question differently in a generation or two. Uh, I forget which group, I think another group in another kind of Kaepernick-related question asked, how do people respond to Smith and Carlos in 1968? And like, I I would guess, like, if you had gone to Bethel College and Seminary in 1968 and asked its overwhelmingly white conservative student population, they, they would have been horrified, right, by two black yeah. athletes protesting during the national anthem like that. I would guess, though, most of our students who read that probably, I mean, I don't know how great they felt about that, but I, I, I mean, I think they're at least inured to that idea of protest. They recognize mm-hmm. how turbulent the late 60s were. They recognize some of the racial injustices that were still enduring that far after the Civil Rights Act and Voting, Voting Rights Act. And so... Yeah, I could see polarization right now, but yeah, I, I'd be curious what this would look like in year 2050 or even later. You know, it could oh, be absolutely. This is setting some things in motion we just can't foresee quite yet. And, you know, just it, it's right. And right. The, uh, the progressivism uh, that uh, moves through history has a tendency to apologize for the, uh, the controversies of the time of the present. Right. right. And so uh, Kaepernick, as controversial as he is right now, a defining period in American history where we really do wrangle with the issue of police violence against African Americans in particular, but people of color more generally, um, then he might be seen as sort of a, as a notable and uh, admired historical figure in the yeah. much of the way that Tommy Smith and John Collins. John- yeah. So Chris, can I throw you the second uh, angle? I mean, a lot of students kind of ask like, what, what do we think? How appropriate this is? I'm not really sure we uh-huh. want to take that, but let's take a different version of it. This comes from a Please. group of uh, NBA lovers called Trust the Process. Sam, I think you know what that refers to, right? 
Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, they ask, how might we think about kneeling during the national anthem as Americans? But they also asked, and I think this is really what I'm going to have us focus on as Christians. Should What is a Christian response to that? And, and so the first thing that came to mind is I tried to consciously address this when I was recording the lecture. I, I put up a picture of Kaepernick kneeling alongside Eric Reed, his teammate in the 49ers, and mentioned that Reed had actually written an op-ed in the New York Times where he quoted James chapter 2. He says, the mm -hmm. Christian faith without works is dead. And this was how I'm actually showing that my faith is making a real difference in the world as I'm going to protest. So that, that, that was a Christian response, right? And, and there have been a few others, uh, um, even some uh, former Fellowship of Christian Athlete kind of alumni. That's how they talked about it uh, in the midst yeah. of those protests a couple of years ago. Did you have any other thoughts when you saw that question? Any other ways Christians maybe should think distinctively about the take a knee protest or the general idea of protest? Yeah, let me start broad and then try and get to narrow, narrow really quickly. Uh, here's a first a blatant advertisement in uh, political science, both in our major and our minor, we have our, offer a class called Political Quest. And one of the features of Political Quest is we look at different Christian denominations and look at the ways they engage in the political process. Uh, and one of the ways we test how they engage is by looking at how they choose or choose not to protest and how they engage in political protests. This is one of those features of, of their modes of engagement. And I will say that uh, as, um, as the polarization around Kaepernick has, has increased, it's increasingly difficult to think about kneeling as, the, as part of the national anthem as anything other than an explicit affront to um, a certain side of this issue. That said, when Kaepernick initiated this, he was very thoughtful and wrote and expressed even before he did it the first time about how he understood kneeling to be a moderate and very communicative act. Right. He didn't intend to disrespect the American flag. He wanted to be present for the national anthem, but he also wanted to symbolize that while he respected the ideals of America, he felt like we were not living up to our ideals. Hmm. And so, th and that was his, mo that was his, rather than sort of uh, ignoring the national anthem, staying in the locker room or doing something else, he wanted to do this sort of uh, halfway gesture of, of acknowledging the, the spirit of America without, um, without standing in, in, in perfect patriotism to it. And that's a hard thing to encapsulate into a soundbite, uh, but that suggests that there is this space where we can try to be communicative with our acts. And I think as Christians, uh, we should be thoughtful to that. Um, but there are lots of different opinions within Christendom about how we go about protesting if we do. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I thought of uh, a reading we teach often in CWC. It's usually the first reading, which is Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham mm -hmm. jail, right? And, and I always guess most CWC students have some memory of that and maybe even recall his idea the church is meant to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. It's not meant to reflect yep. mores of the time. It's meant to change the, the values of the culture that it um, inhabits, engages with. And yeah, you know, I, I would guess, like, given the, some of the history we've talked about, students, you know, you might want to think about this activism as reflecting maybe a more radical strand within the civil rights movement. I mean, we talked about Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell a little bit. But even King, like, he's nonviolent, but he is a protester. He says right at the beginning of that letter, mm -hmm. my goal here is to provoke tension. This mm -hmm. is actually, I mean, in a sense, this is an educational act, just like Socrates in his classroom provokes tension in the mind of his students. I'm trying to use this public display in King's case of, of parading, of uh, public demonstration in Kaepernick's, I think a much more subtle protest, 
it, it right. does provoke tension. We're having this conversation as a result of that. Students are contemplating that tension in their minds and, and the tension, for example, of is it always reconcilable to be Christian and American when um, America uses violence in certain ways against persons of color here and around the world? So that, Chris, that was one ask, way I thought about it. Chris, let me ask you a question. I'm curious to see what you think of this. So. Um, in the United States, we often conflate uh, patriotism and nationalism with mm -hmm. religious faith. Mm -hmm. And what if, instead of Kaepernick leading these protests, it had begun with Eric Reed? And what if, instead of a kneeling during the national anthem, Reed gathered other Christian members of the 49ers into a prayer circle, mm -hmm. and they prayed during the national anthem? How, what do you think the reaction would have been to that? I don't know. I, th I think back to maybe the conversation we had with Angela Denker um, was at last fall. So students, mm -hmm. this would be new to you, but Angela Denker is both a journalist and a pastor and wrote a book essentially about, I think she called it Red State Christians. And for us, at least, as we were thinking about this class, one of the most interesting chapters was she went back to Florida where she had been a reporter for a while and talked to different uh, high school and former college football coaches about the intersection of religion and politics and sports. And it was actually, I think, maybe pretty nuanced and subtle, right? Like there are at least a couple of those coaches, whether they're white or black, were actually pretty sympathetic to the concerns of black athletes and the larger kind of concerns. But at the same time, you know, they would probably describe themselves as conservative evangelicals who are deeply patriotic. So that that's, when you ask that, that's kind of who my, where my mind went. Like I could actually see Maybe if we could somehow remove it from political discourse and the president making an issue of this and choosing to speak into it, if it had just happened like at a high school football game mm -hmm. and a group of athletes are protesting, like I wonder how coaches would have responded to their athletes, or I wonder how uh, boosters or parents would have responded. I maybe it would have been the same thing. Maybe it's tapping into some of the same polarizing currents that that you've described already. But I don't know. I, I do think part of the problem that makes it impossible is. We did have a president who chose to use this. That I mean, like I remember Greg Jennings, right, in our interview in January, saying how weird it was to have the president of the United States talking about his business and about right. his team, I mean, fellow athletes' behavior, and how he didn't really. I mean, I don't know what he would did with that, but he did point to that as an example of how it's very difficult to be an athlete when maybe you do have a um, set of social issues you want to advocate for, but you almost can't win. With you, you're quiet and you get criticized. You speak out in one way, you get criticized. You speak out another way, you get criticized. I, I do think it puts athletes in a very difficult place, and um, that's my very diffident way of answering your question. <laughs> fortunately, I'm not in a job where this really. Uh, I'm not doing it on national TV with the president speaking about my actions. Right. Uh, right. Well, maybe we should move on because uh, yes. there, there were other things we talked about. Um, so I, boy, I get to this question. I'm going to take a deep breath because I think it's it's maybe hard for three white guys to talk about this question well, but I do think it's a fair question. So a group called the Strikers picked up on a pretty troubling section of the reading from the Davies textbook. So he had mentioned uh, that Martin Kane, and here I'll start quoting the question. A senior writer from Sports Illustrated published a lengthy essay in 1971 that argued, quote, black success in sports resulted from a combination of special physiological and psychological factors attributable directly to race, unquote. So our students want to know, is there any new scientific research since this article was published to prove that this is true? So maybe for other, for non-students, we should give a little context here. Uh, Kane was a writer for Sports Illustrated who um, was trying to... I don't know, argue or simply observe, he wondered, are there essentially racial determinants of success uh, in different sports, different positions within the same sport? Uh, and 
you know, at the time it was deeply controversial. It's been controversial ever since. Davies then ties that into the Jimmy the Greek story in the 1980s. Uh, Jimmy Snyder, Jimmy the Greek was, uh, you know, essentially an odds maker, right? And, and did analysis yeah. on CBS uh, NFL pregame show. And in an interview, uh, argued that uh, differences uh, between black and white football players go back to slavery and breeding and went on to say that he didn't think blacks were able to coach and maybe not to be quarterbacks, right? And lost his job as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, what, 87? I forget what year that was, late 80s, maybe? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the context for what the question is asking about. And they, they wonder if there's any new scientific research on this. Um, I don't know. I, I have a couple of things I found that I can share. Is there anything that came to your mind, Chris? Well, when I first read this question, my first thought um, was the bell curve, right? Yep. Uh, and uh, Charles do you want Murray, to, right? You want to talk about yeah? You want to talk about Charles Murray's work here? No, you can or, talk about. It. I'll talk about. Oh, yeah, other excellent. Uh, so uh, Murray's book came out, I believe, in the early nineties. Um, and uh, what Murray argued. Um, which was incredibly controversial, remains controversial, was that um, on average, there are um, statistically significant, not huge, but statistically significant uh, differences on standardized test scores um, between people of different uh, ethnicities, even if you account for things like income. Uh, socioeconomic opportunities, those sorts of things. And obviously what this is essentially arguing is that people's ethnicity plays a role in things like IQ tests. Right. Now, obviously you can imagine this is incredibly controversial. And Murray was very clear to couch these arguments uh, in warnings not to commit the ecological fallacy, uh, to basically say that even though there is this uh, overarching trend which suggests and of course, what he was arguing essentially is that um, people of, of Asian descent tend to score best on IQ tests and uh, Caucasians are somewhere in the middle and uh, African-Americans are somewhat below that. He's like, but you can't infer that any individual member of any one of those groups is innately better or worse than any other member of any of the other groups, right? That's the ecological fallacy. So, but this was incredibly controversial, and I think it remains so. And I think a lot of people took Murray to task for failing to account for hidden biases uh, in analyses, things that he wasn't accounting for, even when he was controlling for things like level of education, a level of income, socioeconomic opportunities as well. So, um, basically, a lot of that stuff is still hidden in society, still hidden in uh, in in a uh, in culture rather than in biology. But that's where I, that's where I went to when I first saw this question. Yeah, I had almost forgotten, but I had read a review in uh, the magazine Nature, a scientific journal, uh, mm -hmm. about a book by a South African writer named Gavin Evans called Skin Deep. And uh, Evans basically wants to dismantle what he calls race science. He wants to argue that race is an entirely artificial construct, that whatever differences we observe, uh, you know, A, are probably created by historical experiences of some sort, economic difference, access to education, just global differences. Mm -hmm. uh, and B, maybe are the biases of the researchers asking the questions that are unexamined. And a couple of the examples he gave, one is intelligence, you know, the kind of things that Murray relied on IQ tests. Uh, um, he, he wants to argue uh, Evans are, you know, they're no more reliable than they were back in the 90s when Murray was using them. But right. for our purposes, the reason I thought about it is that he actually had a chapter on running. So he had uh, talked about the fact that um, in recent history, a lot of distance races, whether it's 
uh, premier marathon events like Boston or New York or Olympic district events have been dominated mm -hmm. by Kenyan runners, right? Yes. And so, again, writing as a South African, looking at that part of the world, he, he wanted to take on what he saw as the fallacy. Oh, therefore, Kenyans have this kind of innate ability as long distance runners. And I don't know if this is the converse of the ecological fallacy, but his point is that you can't judge things by the elite performers in a single right. sport, right? Like right. that tells you something about a very small sample of people who happen to compete at this level. It doesn't tell you anything about a larger group, in which case people are basically the same. Most people are not good distance runners. Most people can't run a marathon, right? And right. so that... That was just something I remember flagging, thinking, well, if we come back to this, uh, unfortunately, I kind of like dimly um, um, lived on my memory. The other thing I would just mentioned, because I did see this question on an individual. Can I, can I jump in real quick? Yeah, Sorry. Sure. Yeah. I think the other nice counterpoint to the Kenyan example, because I've heard this argument too, even on national or international coverage of Olympic events, is how good the Kenyans are. And perhaps is this related to uh, genetics brought about by the high altitude right. um, nature of Kenya? Yeah, the alternative, the clear alternative here is Jamaica, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Jamaica um, vastly uh, produces more sprinters. Usain Bolt is the best example, but they're incredibly successful in uh, Olympic sprinting relative to their population. Is there something unique about the Jamaican, Jamaican genetics? Absolutely not. Their genetic uh, um, pool is very similar to other Caribbean countries. What they have is a culture of sprinting uh, where it really occupies elementary schools, high schools, um, even uh, young adult life at around Jamaica. And so they're getting the very best sprinters out of Jamaica and they're finding really good ways of finding out who they are and sending them onto their Olympic team in ways other countries have not yet been able to emulate. And that's a much better predictor of Olympic success than anything biological per se. Yeah, I mean, because even just only dozens of miles away from that, there's another island where there's a country called the Dominican Republic that has this disproportionate share of baseball players, right? Exactly. I mean, by the same argument, it does make sense, right? Um, if you want to dig any deeper into this, and students, we'll try to share links to the different kind of articles and videos we're talking about on our Moodle page. If you want to know the history of this, um, there's a 1989 article in the Journal of Sports History that we have available through our library by a scholar named David Wiggins. So he points out there's actually a long history of things like Martin Keynes' article from 1971. He goes, back, he goes back to the late 19th century, and there are people trying studies of early African American because we'll talk about Jesse Owens in segment two. In the 1930s, an anthropologist at Howard University, a black scholar named Montague Cobb, studies Jesse Owens and other elite runners and finds that there is no innate racial difference. Right? The, the, so this debate has been going on for a long time. People keep asking the question, but to say there's no innate racial genetic difference. That has to do more with the kind of things Chris talked about, like access to certain sports, emphasis on certain sports. Uh, Chris, do you want to talk about the last question here? I know this one especially struck your fancy. Sure, let me try. So here is, um, Here's the last question. This comes from uh, the Twinkies, uh, which is one of our uh, uh, one of our groups. They said they uh, they said um, they started asking about African American history, but end up focusing on the current pandemic. And here's their question. We start quoting it now. Hypothetically, once this pandemic ends, will all of us rush to stadiums? Will salaries for players increase? Will ticket costs go up? An example of this found in Davies was after the Second World War, fans flocked to ballparks, players' salaries increased, etc. Will COVID-19 produce a similar economic effect as World War II? And 
I'm going to, I'm going to take the, I'm curious to see what Chris says about this, but I'm going to take my answer and suggest that the, uh, it is, is a pretty clear. No, I don't think this will produce a similar economic effect to world war two. I don't mean to say that we're going to have no spending uh, increases once the pandemic uh, um, eases, but rather I think it's going to be a much weirder uh, mm. uh, um, set of uh, circumstances, mostly because I, depending on how long the shelter in place order lasts and how long the pandemic uh, lasts for us and how much fear that induces into us, I think we could see at least a temporary depression in large public gatherings. Even after sort of warnings have been lifted, I think people might be reticent to go into large public groups just more generally. I think that will slowly ease over time. As a consequence, I think ticket costs may go up. As, as, as various kinds of sports look to recoup their costs, they're going to lean more heavily on their diehard fans who are going to go see the Twins or going to go see the Timberwolves play no matter what. And so we might actually see uh, um, co- arena costs, ticket costs increase. Um, or um, it'll be interesting to see what happens when uh, various leagues renegotiate uh, TV contracts to see if more people are staying home to watch sports. That's a good question. I don't know about that. Um, but I do think we'll see people uh, spend money in other kinds of ways in the short term um, after the pandemic lifts. Uh, I, th- I think we'll see a rush back to whatever restaurants are left. Um, I think that's much more likely than large scale sporting events. Yeah, no, I, I think that all makes all makes sense. I think the real question is uh, how deep a recession slash depression does this cause? Um, I mean, yep. World War II is interesting because immediately after the war, there's actually a short recession, um, yes. mostly because the economy was so disrupted by having to re-gear to wartime. But by the late 40s, America was starting to enter its kind of boom period. Right. So I think that's actually what you see it, um, is because by the late 40s into the 50s, you get this kind of flourishing of sports. But it is there's ad- less disposable income and there's a high unemployment rate, you know, sports is a distraction of a sort, but it's expensive to actually go to games. It's not expensive to watch games on TV. So I guess that would be my expectation. I guess what I want is what I'm curious about to pull on a couple of threads from earlier podcasts I mean, could we actually see more of a sports is something you do remotely? It's more of something you do at a distance. You know, we heard Jason Jennings in our stadium podcast talk about how for owners and construction companies like Mortensen, I mean, they're competing with TV viewership. They're competing with right. the couch. And it's hard to, I mean, tell uh, ticket buyers that the high costs are justified by the value you get from the stadium experience. If you now throw in the sort of lingering fear that by going to a stadium, you're, you're risking your health and you've got access to TV and you've been getting used to that for a while, I'll be curious what kind of longer term effects this has on on sports attendance. Can I take us a very quick rabbit hole here? Yeah. Um, uh, ISIS published an editorial. Um, yes, that's correct. ISIS published wow. an editorial uh, in their uh, their weekly news magazine. Yes, ISIS has a weekly news magazine. Um where they said the pandemic is the perfect time to attack the Crusaders. Uh, the Crusaders is us, by the way, if you're curious. Us. Yeah. Um, because already we're now fearful of public gatherings. And if um, if some kind of terrorist events could also be linked to public gatherings, uh, this really could depress the American economy in ways that even the virus itself cannot, right? Um, so I think this is... Uh, This is something worth kind of keeping in mind, not suggesting that whatever ISIS says is likely to come to pass. They say lots of propagandistic things that do not come to pass. But uh, this is worth paying attention to is that um, as we head back to sort of large scale public life, um, how we do that 
is going to be idiosyncratic and mm. uh, unpredictable, I think. Chris, I was wondering how long it would take for us to actually talk seriously about terrorism in this class. I don't know if students realize that's actually our main area of expertise. Yeah, I'm, it, it I, probably doesn't come up too naturally in our sports class. No, though I've got a little bit of time set aside to talk about it in relation to the Olympics. I would think so. Okay, well, thanks, students, for your questions. You had many other questions besides. We only got to a few of them, but thanks for asking them. Hopefully this was a useful format for you. We'll keep refining it as we go along. In segment two, we'll pick up the rest of what students were working on this week and try to determine an authoritative statement of the four people who belong on African-American sports Mount Rushmore. Back after a break. This week in sports history. Chattanooga, Tennessee, April 2nd, 1931. Playing a preseason exhibition against a local minor league team, Yankee Sluggers, Babe Ruth, and Lou Gehrig both strike out against 17-year-old left-hander Jackie Mitchell, a young woman who would spend six more years pitching for amateur and semi-pro teams before retiring from baseball. Norfolk, Virginia, April 3rd, 1983. The second NCAA Women's Basketball Championship ends with USC edging the defending champs, Louisiana Tech. Trojan star Cheryl Miller is named the tournament's most outstanding player. A year later, she repeats as NCAA champion, then wins Olympic gold with Team USA. Augusta, Georgia, April 4, 1937. Byron Nelson, 25-year-old golfer from Texas, wins the Masters by two strokes. Nelson claims the same title five years later, plus three other majors and over 50 tour events before retiring at age 34. Los Angeles, California, April 6, 1987. Longtime Dodgers manager Al Campanis appears on ABC's late-night news program, Nightline, to talk about the 40th anniversary of Dodger infielder Jackie Robinson breaking baseball's color line. Campanis was fired two days later for this explanation of baseball's lack of black managers and executives. No, I don't believe it's prejudice. I, I, I truly believe that they may not have some of the uh, necessities to uh, be, uh, let's say, a field manager or perhaps a, a general manager. You really believe that? Well, I don't say that they're all of them, but they certainly are short. How many quarterbacks do you have? How many pitchers do you have that are black? It, it yeah, but I mean, you know, I got to tell you, that sounds like the same kind of garbage we were hearing 40 years ago about players when they when they were saying, ah, not 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 really, not well, really cut out. Hey, you remember the days, you know, they hit a black football player in the knees, and you know, no, that really sounds like garbage. If you if you forget no, those days, so. it's not it's not garbage, Mr. Cobble, because uh, I played on a on a college team, and the center fielder was black, and then the backfield at NYU with a fullback who was black. Never knew the difference of whether he was black or white. We were teammates. So it just might be that they, they why are, are black uh, men or black people not good swimmers? Because they don't have the buoyancy. Oh, I don't, I don't, I, it, it may just be that they don't have access to all the country clubs and the pools. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History.
Welcome back to segment two of this week's episode of The 252. Thanks again to our students from History and Politics of Sports at Bethel University for joining us. In a sense, they really wrote what's about to happen here in segment two. Uh, longtime listeners of the podcast know that we have an affinity for an exercise that we call Mount Rushmore of in sports <laughs> history. So I'm I was trying to remember the full list of Mount Rushmore as we've done. We've done NFL, college basketball, um, baseball, uh, baseball, sports year. Sports here, yep. sports movies we've done. Um, women's, I think we did women's sports. I thought. I think so, too. yeah. And so we thought this might make for a pretty good assignment since we're doing a week on African-American history as seen through the lens of sports. And students had lectures to watch, listen to. They had a couple of chapters in their textbook to read. Uh, this, I mean, various athletes had come up in earlier work that students had done. We asked them to give us first individually and then in groups, their four nominees for a Mount Rushmore of African-American sports history. So all of our students did this and then in their 10 groups, they narrowed it down. And so I tabulated the results from the 10 groups. I'm gonna give you maybe like the top 10 so far, you guys. And then we're gonna try to narrow this down to four. So all in right. first place, unanimously, Jackie Robinson. And I think we're going to go ahead and just give him a spot, right? Yep, exactly. That's one of our four spots. We can't even argue with that. I, don't think, I think that. he gets he gets the he gets the George Washington spot on Mount Rushmore. I think. <laughs> okay. okay. And I don't think I don't think we need to say a whole lot more about why he belongs there. Students have heard a lot of this already, but uh, I, I'm glad they all recognized his his place on this monument. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, one thing I should make clear: I, we actually asked the groups to give us their top four, and then also two honorable mentions. So I actually gave half points if you got an honorable mention. So number two, narrowly ahead of number three, Muhammad Ali got uh, essentially six and a half points, and then Jesse Owens just behind him with six, and then right behind them, Althea Gibson and Tiger Woods at five each. Okay. Those are our top five, and then after that, it gets very interesting. But now we're down into two or three votes for each. Uh, Harry Edwards. Uh, Sam, can I just put you on the spot? Do you, do you know just offhand? I'm just curious. Do you know who Harry Edwards is? Uh, only a little because I looked him up okay. when I saw the list. But no, it's this was not someone I was uh, initially familiar with. No. Okay, so we should definitely come back to Harry Edwards, who's a sociologist and activist. We'll say more about him. Uh, yep. Joe Lewis, narrowly after him, the great boxer, two and a half votes. And then two votes apiece to Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, whose sister also got a vote. And then our one non-sports person at all, Booker T. Washington, the mm -hmm. founder of the Tuskegee Institute. We had mentioned him in the second part of our lecture as illustrating one important African-American response to segregation, which is to avoid headlong conflict with it, instead to build up separate, strong black institutions and to bring about gradual change that way. Mm -hmm. And we use that to set up in a way that's where the Negro Leagues come from, right? If, you've, if there's a color line, you can't compete with white players. You build up your own institutions. You strive for self-sufficiency. You strive to demonstrate uh, um, uh, African-American abilities. And so some students thought that that was a pretty important uh, idea that we should recognize here. Um, others got votes. Uh, Hank Aaron, Rube Foster, the founder of the Negro Leagues, Jack Johnson, the, the great heavyweight champion of the early 20th century, uh, Walter Payton, and Vikings fans, get ready, Dennis Green got a vote as an honorable mention, <laughs> which brings back lots of memories that we don't need to get into right now. Okay. Somebody, somebody should say, if you want to crown him, crown him. I think that needs to be said. Uh, I mean, I think to the credit, I think uh, the, this group that wanted to recognize Dennis Green, he had also been a coach at Stanford and it was really a pioneering uh, African-American coach at a time when not a lot of black 
uh, men got that opportunity. So I think that was sure. the rationale for Danny yep. Green. Okay, so uh, I don't know how you want to do this. We've got one spot taken care of. We, we've got yep. a kind of clear four others, but I was wondering maybe in the people in the kind of two to three vote range, is there anyone you think we ought to lift into the conversation alongside Muhammad Ali, Jesse Owens, Tiger Woods, Althea Gibson? Uh, well, of that group, who do you think is the strongest claim? I would say, but before uh, I'll, I'll let Chris answer that question. But as I look at this, and as I was thinking about this, it seems like there's a a couple main categories here. I mean, you have trailblazers, right? Mm -hmm. People who came early, um, things like that. I mean, Jackie Robinson is an example of this. And then you also have goats. You know, people yeah. who are just like they're the apex. Like you know, and and some people they they cross over lines there. So like Ali is both in some ways a trailblazer, but also, you know, arguably, if you're thinking about a, a Mount Rushmore of boxing, he's on that, right? Mm -hmm. Or Michael Jordan is a, is probably, he would be a goat in terms of basketball, greatest of all time kind of thing. So I, I find it interesting to think about with the Mount Rushmore, what are we trying to say? Right, which is a familiar debate we've had. Are we are we honoring purely athletic achievement? Is it larger social, cultural, political significance? Um, I think it's the second. I, um, that's what I, I think would. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 larger significance for uh, the experience of African American athletes. Yep. Certainly, no. I'm just saying, like, as you're looking at these categories, you have people who who are either trailblazers or that, and then they have both of them have this significance. I think you could make the case for a. A Michael Jordan, not just, wow, he's the greatest basketball player of all time, but he was innovative in terms of uh, uh, marketing himself in a particular kind of way um, and became and becoming literally a brand. I mean, the Jordan brand is something yeah. which is a, a dominant thing. So, so, you know, I think he's somebody who I don't think of Jordan as a trailblazer per se, but in some ways he kind of is. So I, I think that's not somebody who I think will make it on there, but I think he's maybe more interesting than just he was a great basketball player. And that's a theme that students picked up on from the second part of their reading. Um, so our textbook author talks about really Jordan and Tiger Woods here as being athletes who they, they're, they achieve the pinnacle in their sport. They're the greatest. They're, they're these kind of global celebrities. They build these brands. They have close relationships with business. But also uh, catch criticism then for not using those platforms to push for social change, to take political stances. You know, Jordan's mm -hmm. Republicans right. by Nike's too kind of attitude, right? Right. right. And, and so, like that was an important theme we were talking about. And to me, that doesn't disqualify them. That that actually adds to their significance. But it's Certainly. a complicated kind of significance that we'd be recognizing. Um, for that matter, Jesse Owens is kind of an interesting figure, right? Like, I mean, I think we all know the story of the Berlin Olympics, and, and that significance is clear, but the aftermath of that is pretty striking, too. I mean, the first of all, the way he struggled, right? Like, this did not lead to enduring success for Jesse Owens. It did not change the segregated state of uh, American society. And then also in the right. 50s and 60s, Jesse Owens uh, is not a part of the civil rights movement. If anything, he's arguing against it. He actually speaks for conservative causes in the 60s. And that re represents a different kind of strand within African-American life. Should we talk about Harry Edwards since he's on there? And we kind of uh, left yeah. that sort of dangling. I'm to come back to Althea Gibson, please. Let's okay. do Harry Edwards first. So Harry Edwards uh, was actually a college athlete himself. I think he was a discus thrower, if I remember right. But in the 60s, I got his PhD in sociology. He was teaching at, I think it's now San Jose State University in California. And um, is, I mean, he's attached to the black power movement, black nationalism. In 1967, uh, um, is at the head of a boycott movement at San Jose 
what now is San Jose State, uh, protesting generally the treatment of African-Americans, the treatment of African-American athletes by these colleges and how their labor was being exploited. It actually results in the cancellation of a football game. Um, this is somewhat significant. I've mentioned in class that I've been reading Jill Lepore's book, These Truths, which is a one-volume history of America. And in her section on the civil rights movement, she actually talks about Harry Edwards because Harry Edwards then uh, gets in this heated debate with the governor of California in 1967, who is anyone? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. And actually, it's very useful for Reagan because he's trying to embellish his credentials as a conservative that, that white Americans can trust. And then in 1968, Harry Edwards tries to organize a black boycott of the Mexico City Games. And it's, it's an early kind of... Uh, I mean, those athletes have to make really difficult choices, right? They've been training for that one shot at the Olympics. A very few do boycott. Most of them decide to compete, but that's where the Smith and Carlos protest comes from. That they, they compete, but they decide they've got to use their platform to, to protest. Uh, and so, I mean, Harry Edwards has never gone away. He shows up in a lot of documentaries, for example. He's become a sports psychologist, among other things. But I think especially because of his role in the civil rights movement in the late 60s, that's why he showed up so prominently. Uh, Chris, oh, you want to talk about Althea Gibson? Uh, just briefly, um, Althea Gibson uh, was a tennis player and a golfer. And I think the case that I want to make for her over Tiger Woods is that um, she basically was Jackie Robinson uh, pushing, uh, it, but not only was Jackie Robinson, plus she was doing it backwards and in heels, right? Yeah. Um, she was do, uh, she won uh, Wimbledon and the precursor to the U.S. Open, the U.S. Nationals. Um, did it in, in 1956. She did it again in 58. Uh, she was the female athlete of the year both times. She won 11 Grand Slam tournaments uh, and is widely considered to be uh, one of the greatest tennis players of all time. So she had the double bind of not only doing this as an African-American woman, but doing it as a woman. And I think that is really notable and deserves her inclusion on, on, on Mount Rushmore. I agree. I forget which group it was. I think it might have been the Justins, but if not, I'm sorry. But um, one of them on their document actually wrote, a, I think in the honorable mention section about the difficulty if they wanted to give um, a spread, right? They want a chronological diversity. They want men and women. They want different kinds mm -hmm. of sports, which is a familiar problem we have with this exercise. Choosing only four really puts you in difficult decisions. Exactly. I guess I would I would probably lean in the same direction on that grounds. The problem to me then is we get a pretty narrow chronological spread. If it's uh, Jesse that's Owens true. the earliest, Muhammad Ali is the latest. That's that's only about thirty years of history. And on that basis, I almost want to argue for Tiger Woods and maybe leave out Jesse Owens uh, in order to show that this mm. story continues. It's not simply resolved with Jackie Robinson or Muhammad Ali, but some of these tensions are still being worked out in in different ways in our own time, in my lifetime at least. Yep. So I don't know yeah. if we put Sam on the spot and make him pick the last three. We've got Jack. Man, it's, it's 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 really hard because I, I I really want Jesse Owens on there. You know, in part based on thinking about the conversation we had in segment one, thinking about race science and those types of things, like the significance of the the nineteen thirty six Olympics. I mean, the it's it's one thing to go win four gold medals. You know, Carl Lewis does that in eighty four, but Jesse Owens doing it in Nazi Germany is like, I don't know, like that's yeah. that, that that's <clears> also <throat> like this 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 amazing achievement too, um, and the significance of that. So like, he's one that I sort of want to have on there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, that was, as, as I looked at it, those were, those were my four were, were Robinson, Ali, Owens, and Gibson. Okay. Um, 
Well, let's take it. I, I think it's a, I think it's a Trailblazers um, list, really. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. So that's your top four: Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Jesse Owens, Nelthea Gibson. Congratulations to them or to their memory, I guess. Thanks, students, again for doing this. Well, I don't know if we'll do this exercise again. I don't know if we'll do a, uh, an Olympians Mount Rushmore, journalists Mount Rushmore as we get to other topics. But it was certainly a good way to to bring some of this history together. Okay, we're running a little bit long. Absolutely. We'll take one more break and then we'll be back to suggest three things to see. Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Okay, we're back. We're running short of time as always. So we always like to close by suggesting three to see. Now, historically, that had been upcoming events and sports that you could watch on TV. That's, of course, not an option. So instead, for our COVID part of the season, we're going to recommend movies, TV series, websites, YouTube clips, etc. related to sports. Sam, get us started. So I know Chris and Chris are going to get all scholarly on you and talk about articles and things like that. So I want to talk about watching a sporting event. In a normal world, we'd be watching college basketball this weekend. So I want to recommend a classic college hoop, hoops game that's available in its entirety on YouTube. I also want it to be a game that I remember watching live. I'm always a sucker for a game where a sharpshooting small guard eviscerates a higher rated team. So let's go back to March 12th, 1995 for the ACC Tournament Championship game uh, between number three, North Carolina, which is led by two soon-to-be NBA lottery picks, Jerry Stackhouse and Rasheed Wallace, as they face off against number seven, Wake Forest, who feature a sophomore center named Tim Duncan. But we're not here for any of them. This is all about Wake Forest senior point guard Randolph Childress. In the first two games of the ACC Tournament, Childress put up 40 points in a first-round defeat of Duke, then dropped 30 on Virginia, but he saved his best for last uh, in the championship game against the Tar Heels. I don't want to spoil anything, but Childress lit up the heels, breaking the ACC tournament scoring record and the ankles of future NBA point guard Jeff McGinnis in one of the greatest crossover shamings ever. Just search ACC Tournament 1995 on YouTube. If you're a college basketball fan, this one is a must-see. Okay. Oh man, I hate following Sam. Okay. <laughs> I should have probably recommended this to you a month and a half ago when it was President's Day, but you've probably got a little bit more time now. So history.com, the companion website to the History Channel, has a fun article on the sporting exploits of American presidents. Now, I don't love the author tries to infer broader truths or personality traits from these stories about presidents and their uh, sporting preferences, but there are some great stories here. And my favorite is Dwight Eisenhower <laughs> trying to take down Jim Thorpe in a uh, um, in a football game and nearly ending his military career as a result. Imagine that alternate history. Wow, love to play that out. Well, if you're like me and the postponement of baseball's opening day has you down, head on over to Amazon Prime to enjoy an unusual baseball story. No, no, a documentary starts with a Pirates-Padres game in 1970 when Pittsburgh right-hander Doc Ellis threw a no-hitter after taking LSD. That's right, he <laughs> dropped acid and pitched in doubleheader. In fact, in the uh, documentary, he insists that he was high on something or other every single time he took the mound in the major leagues. 
more freewheeling than your typical documentary, that's you, Ken Burns, No No tells a troubling <laughs> story of addiction, but it also sheds light on the politics of race and sports in the 1970s, when the number of African-American baseball players reached its peak, over 18% of the MLB total. And as uh, at least one of our students mentioned this week, it's well under half that now. I wish we had more time to talk about that. But no, no, a documentary. So students will link all of this on the Moodle page. Other listeners, of course, you can go to my blog on pietischoolman.com, and we'll have a show page with some of these links. Guys, thanks for talking through all of this. I had a good time. Me too. All right, students, you can hear more. We'll be uh, telling you more about the stadium simulation that's coming up. Uh, if in doubt, always go to Moodle, and you can find what's coming up. Chris Moore, close us out. On behalf of my colleagues, uh, thanks for listening to us. Students will be in touch soon. Uh, always reach out to us if you have any concerns or questions about the class. Everybody else, thanks for listening. You can reach out to us at channel3900 at gmail.com. And until we're in your podcast feed again, go Royals. <laughs> <laughs>